Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for February 18th to 24th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Charles Brewer on the roller coaster career of behaviorist John B. Watson. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. February 18th. In 1983, the APA agreed to buy Psychology Today magazine from the Ziff Davis Publishing Company for $3.8 million. The APA also took out a loan for up to $2.5 million to cover transition costs. For February 19th, in 1909, the National Committee for Mental Hygiene was founded at the Manhattan Hotel in New York. The organization was the forerunner of the National Mental Health Association. The organizer of this founding meeting was Clifford W. Beers. For February 21st, in 1953, biochemist James Watson built the first accurate model of the DNA molecule, the carrier of information determining inherited characteristics. Watson and Francis Crick's model was published in the April 25, 1953 issue of Nature. They won the Nobel Prize for this work in 1962. Also for February 21st, in 1969, the Harvard Educational Review published Arthur Jensen's article, How Much Can We Boost IQ and Scholastic Achievement? The article provoked widespread research and debate over the roles of heredity, race, and environment in determining intelligence. For February 23rd, in 1955, the Wechsler Adult Intelligence Scale was first published. The Wechsler Scale is in more widespread use than any other intelligence test. And finally, for February 24th, in 1904, the Southern Society for Philosophy and Psychology was founded at a meeting of the National Education Association in Atlanta. The organizer of the founding meeting was Edward Buchner. James Mark Baldwin was elected the first president of the society. On February 24, 1913, Johns Hopkins University psychologist John Broadus Watson gave a lecture at the meeting of the New York branch of the American Psychological Association entitled Psychology as the Behaviorist Views It. The lecture, and the article of the same title that would be published later that year in Watson's own journal, Psychological Review, represented a landmark in American psychology. Watson argued that psychology be viewed solely as the natural science of behavior, in which neither consciousness nor introspection play any role. Although behaviorism soon became the dominant approach to the discipline, within less than a decade Watson himself would be drummed out of the discipline by scandal, following the examples of two of his predecessors at Johns Hopkins, Charles Sanders Peirce and James Mark Baldwin. 
On the phone to discuss Watson's career is Professor Charles Brewer of Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. Dr. Brewer is the winner of numerous awards for teaching psychology and the author of the chapter on John Watson in the first volume of the Portraits of Pioneers of Psychology series, published in 1991 by Erlbaum. Professor Brewer, um, first, could you tell us a little about Watson's background? Where was he from and, and who were his parents? And, and where did he do his early schooling? Watson was born on January the 9th, 1878, in a small town called Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, which is about eight miles from Greenville and only a short distance from Furman University, where I am now sitting in my office. His parents were Pickens Butler Watson and Emma Rowe Watson. Early members of the Watson family were independent landowners who settled in the Carolinas soon after the American Revolution. Watson's mother was devoutly active in local Baptist churches, and she named her son for John Albert Broadus, a Baptist minister in Greenville, who later rose to national prominence as a theologian and educator. The Watson family considered Emma Rose's social standing in the community to be far below their own, and this was a problem throughout the marriage. The relationship between Watson's parents was always a tempestuous one, and his father essentially abandoned the family during difficult economic times. Watson was the fourth of six children in a dirt-poor family, but his mother had very high aspirations for all of her offspring. Watson reports in a short autobiographical sketch that from the age of six, he trudged to small rural schools in the hamlets of Reedy River, Whitehorse, and Traveler's Rest. When he was 12, Mrs. Watson moved the family into Greenville because she thought the city schools were better and that the city would offer greater opportunities for her and her family. After graduating from Greenville High School at the age of 16, Watson enrolled at Furman University and stayed for five years, earning a master's degree in 1899. He continued to live at home while he was a Furman student. During the summer after graduating from Furman and for the next academic year, Watson taught in rural schools to save money for graduate school. A few weeks after his mother died, Watson began to think seriously about continuing his education in graduate school. Being more interested at the time in philosophy than in psychology, he decided to attend the University of Chicago, where he arrived in 1900 with $50 in his pocket and absolutely no other financial resources. Well, uh, as you say, he, he decided to go to Chicago for graduate school where he studied um, psychology with luminaries such as John Dewey and James Roland Angel, um, but he seemed to get along better with the physiologist, yes, especially Jacques Loeb. Uh, could you tell us about his work there? Yes. In his autobiography, Watson says that he took courses with John Dewey, but he never understood a thing that John Dewey said. <laughs> As a result, he sort of got disenchanted with philosophy. At Chicago, Watson was ambitious but broke. To earn money, he worked as a janitor, a waiter, 
and the caretaker for Professor Henry Donaldson's laboratory rats. In 1894, John Dewey came to the University of Chicago as head of the Department of Philosophy that included the divisions of pedagogy and psychology. Coming to Chicago with Dewey was James Roland Angel as head of the division of psychology. Before Dewey left Chicago to go to Columbia University in 1904, psychologists at Chicago had established their own independent department and they were prominent contributors to the school of psychology that we now call functionalism. Watson intended to earn a PhD degree in philosophy at Chicago, but he changed his major to experimental psychology with philosophy as a first minor and neurology with Professor Donaldson as a second minor. These changes in Watson's academic program were probably prompted by Angel's influence and encouragement. As part of his neurology minor, Watson also studied biology and physiology with Jacques Loeb. Uncomfortable with research on humans, Watson was excited by research with animals and he proposed to conduct animal research with Loeb. Because of Loeb's criticisms of liberal evolutionism and his position that was inconsistent with certain emphases of the functionalists at Chicago, Angel persuaded Watson not to have Loeb as his dissertation advisor. Instead, Watson's dissertation research was jointly directed by Angel and Donaldson. Breaking with tradition, Watson's dissertation research concerned the relation between behavior in the white rat and the growth of its nervous system. His interest in animal behavior continued, and in 1913, when he was at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, he gave a series of eight lectures at Columbia University. These lectures formed the basis of Watson's book titled Behavior and Introduction to Comparative Psychology, published in 1914. Interestingly enough, Watson dedicated this book to my friends and teachers, James R. Angel and Henry H. Donaldson. Could you tell us about the kind of research he did while he was at Chicago with the rats? Actually, I read that uh, just last week. But as I understand it, what he was trying to do was to see what areas of the brain were related to the learning on the part of the white rat. And in a way, this was a kind of prelude to the work that others did later on what was called equipotentiality. Do you remember those studies? Mm-hmm. Lashley's Where theorem. They would, they would destroy certain sensory modalities either at the peripheral level or at the neural level and see how much interference that caused with the animal's learning. And what they discovered was that it wasn't a specific area that was critical, but it was the total amount of tissue destroyed that interfered with the learning of the white rat. Mm -hmm. Watson's work was similar to that, and it was as though he had already wondered about the question that others later explored much more thoroughly than he did. Well, then in, in 1908, uh, James Mark Baldwin uh, convinced Watson to take a position at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. 
Uh, but just a few months later, a scandal forced Baldwin to resign, leaving Watson in charge of the department and of the influential journal Psychological Review. Uh, what impact do you think this unexpected opportunity had on Watson's career? Except for these unusual and scandalous circumstances, such important positions probably would never have come to one so young, not even to John B. Watson. As one writer put it, thus, at age 31, Watson became the director of psychology at a major research institution and editor of a journal of considerable influence within his profession. Now he would have access to funding for his own research and a forum for the dissemination of his ideas. Evidently, Watson was effective in exploiting these extraordinary opportunities. For example, he was the founding editor of the Journal of Experimental Psychology in 1915, and in the same year, served as president of the American Psychological Association at the very early age of 37. And then in 1909, uh, an article in Psychological Bulletin by Robert Yerkes and Sergius Morgulis brought Pavlov's research on conditioning to the attention of Americans more or less for the first time. How do you think Pavlov's work affected Watson's intellectual development? Watson's presidential address at the December 1915 meeting of the American Psychological Association in Chicago was titled, The Place of the Conditioned Reflex in Psychology, and it was published in the Psychological Review in March 1916. Notice the very short publication lag. <laughs> My hunch is that the fact that Watson was the editor of the Psychological Review might have had something to do with that short publication lag. In this paper, Watson admitted that his critics had chastised him for rejecting the method of introspection without suggesting a better alternative. Recognizing problems of applying to humans Pavlov's conditioning of the salivary reflex in dogs, Watson seemed to prefer Bekhterev's research on the conditioned motor reflex. Because Watson rejected the subjective method of introspection, he thought that conditioning provided an objective method for studying sensory problems that people previously thought could be explored only through introspection. Hence, conditioning was one of the principal methods that Watson advocated for his behavioral approach. In addition, Watson believed that psychologists could use the conditioned reflex to modify behavior and thereby help them to control behavior. He believed that the three basic emotional reactions of fear, rage, and love are present at or soon after birth. Virtually everything else, he thought, was learned through conditioning. This contention was the basis for Watson and Rayner's widely cited study of Little Albert B that was published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology in 1920. To summarize then, I would say that conditioning was a critically important cornerstone for behaviorism as well as for Watson's application of behavioral principles to his later work in advertising. Well, like Baldwin before him, Watson's university career succumbed to scandal following uh, from an affair with Rosalie Rayner, the student who had worked with him on the Little Albert study, as you mentioned. Um, how did that play out, and, and what happened to Watson after he left the academy? After returning from active duty as an officer in the United States Signal Corps during World War I, 
Watson's reputation soared even higher with publication of a book titled Psychology from the Standpoint of a Behaviorist in 1919. By this time, Watson's professional prestige was skyrocketing, but his personal life was quite a different matter. Watson had begun research on the development of emotions in young children, including the study of little Albert mentioned earlier. A member of one of Baltimore's most prominent and influential families, Rosalie Rayner had graduated the previous spring from Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, before becoming Watson's graduate assistant at Hopkins. Watson and Rayner's romantic relationship led eventually to Watson's academic demise. Soon after Watson and his first wife were divorced, he and Rosalie Rayner were married. To avoid the kind of scandal that surrounded Baldwin's earlier departure from Hopkins, Watson was asked to resign, and his resignation essentially ended his career as an academic psychologist. Watson was literally devastated by his treatment at Hopkins, and he was hurt that his colleagues did not come to his defense. By his own admission, he was on the verge of a breakdown. The academic world was closed to him. He had a new wife and considerable financial obligations from his divorce settlement, but he had no job and no promising prospects. He and Rosalie moved to New York City, where he obtained a position with the J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency, almost quadrupling his salary at Hopkins. In his new position, Watson enjoyed applying scientific principles to consumer behavior and he was made a vice president of the Thompson Agency in 1924. He left Thompson in 1935 and served as an advertising executive at the William S. T. Company until his retirement at the age of 67. In the business world, Watson was a real entrepreneur with a luxurious office and a salary that reached $70,000. The Watsons lived on a beautiful estate which he named Whippoorwill Farm in Westport, Connecticut, and he rode the train to work in Manhattan. Watson's son, Jim, by the way, told me once that his father was absolutely terrified at the thought of learning to drive a car, and he actually never did learn to drive. Watson and Rayner had two sons, William Rayner Watson, called Billy, born in 1921, and James Broadus Watson, called Jim, born in 1924. Unfortunately, Rosalie contracted an undiagnosed infection, and this was in the day before penicillin and other so-called wonder drug. Her condition deteriorated, and she died in 1935 at the age of 35. Watson's son, Jim, told me that his father never completely recovered from Rosalie's death, after which Watson lost much of his vitality and panache. He sold the Westport estate in the early 1950s and moved to a remote, small farm in Woodbury, Connecticut, where he spent his last years leading a very simple life. According to his son, Jim, Watson's farm in Woodbury was very similar to his boyhood farm home in Traveler's Rest 
and he didn't have indoor plumbing and he didn't have electricity because he wanted to return to a much simpler life. All right. Well, thank you very much for this today. We have been discussing the life and career of John B. Watson with Professor Charles Brewer of Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. Dr. Brewer is the author of the chapter on John Watson in the first volume of the Portraits of Pioneers of Psychology series, published in 1991 by Erlbaum. If you'd like to read more about John Watson, you might get the best of the biographies of him, which is called Mechanical Man and was written by Kerry Buckley, and that was published in 1989. Um, there are also some very interesting articles and chapters about him. Um, you might look at Franz Samuelson's article, The Struggle for Scientific Authority, which was published in the Journal of the History of Behavioral Sciences in 1981. In that article, Professor Samuelson shows that contrary to widespread belief, uh, behaviorism did not catch on immediately after the 1913 article. Uh, in fact, World War I intervened, and although behaviorism was known, it really didn't become fashionable, if you like, until uh, after World War I, in fact, into the 1920s. Another fascinating article is by Ben Harris and is called Whatever Happened to Little Albert? And that was published in American Psychologist in 1979. Now, given the title, you might think that Professor Harris has gone out and found out who little Albert actually was and what became of him. In fact, I get questions uh, via email um, about that question all the time, and the answer is no one knows. Um, however, uh, the little Albert study has been uh, misrepresented in any number of ways by people who have agendas that differ from those of Watson, and Harris uh, uh, surveys some of those and talks about what really happened in the um, in the Little Albert Study. Of course, you could read the Little Albert Study yourself. That's probably the best way to go. And you can find it on the Classics in the History of Psychology website. Another interesting chapter, actually, is by Robert H. Wozniak, and it was published originally in 1993, called Theoretical Roots of Early Behaviorism, Functionalism, the Critique of Introspection, and the Nature and Evolution of Consciousness. Um, and that is the uh, introduction to a series of reprints that Professor Wozniak edited on early behaviorism and the, and the lead-up to behaviorism. And he shows there that uh, calling Watson the founder of behaviorism as such is a controversial thing to do because there were lots of people who were working on what would be recognized as behaviorism uh, earlier than Watson. You can find a 1997 version of the Wozniak article online. Um, it has a very long URL, so I've given it a tiny URL. You go to tinyurl dot com slash yzv158 and you'll find that article by Wozniak. On that topic of the early origins of behaviorism, there is a classic article by John Burnham that appeared in the Journal of the History of the Behavioral Sciences in 1968 called On the Origins of Behaviorism and discusses many of the issues involved. John Burnham has also published an interview that he did with John Watson, very late in Watson's life, um, and it is called John B. Watson Interviewee Professional Figure Symbol, and that appeared in J. Todd and E.K. Morris's book, Modern Perspectives on John B. Watson and Classical Behaviorism, and that was published by Greenwood Press in 1994. Interestingly, you can find the entire uh, book, Modern Perspectives on John B. Watson and Classical Behaviorism, online at people.emich.org. 
Ubuntu.edu slash jtodd, two Ds, slash watsonbook.pdf. So there's a number of references to get you started if you're interested in writing a paper about John Watson this term. Um, there are a number of rumors that circulate around John Watson's life. One is that he was involved in sex research, possibly with Rosalie Rayner, and that was really the basis of his dismissal from Johns Hopkins. Indeed, there is even an article in the 1970s in the Journal of Sex Research uh, that claims this is so, and, and even has a photograph of instruments that are claimed to have been used by Watson in his sex research. However, the best historical research available seems to show that there is no basis for uh, that rumor, although the rumor uh, does circulate quite widely. And I am told that there is an article forthcoming from one of our earlier guests on uh, This Week in the History of Psychology, Ludi T. Benjamin Jr., that should be appearing in American Psychologist in the next year or so, and it thoroughly investigates this rumor and really puts it to rest. Um, there's also a rumor that uh, little Albert, Albert B., from the study with Rayner, was in fact the illegitimate child of Watson and Rayner. Um, there's no evidence that that's the case either. Uh, little Albert seems to be exactly what Watson says he is in the article, which is the, um, uh, the child of a wet nurse who worked in the hospital where the research was done. There are also many rumors about how terrible a parent John Watson was and, and that, in fact, he had drove his, uh, his children to suicide. Um, it is, in fact, true that one of Watson's sons did commit suicide. And it's true that Watson advocated uh, a kind of distant parenting style uh, that was not terribly emotional. And it is true that Watson did send both his sons away to boarding school very soon after their mother, Rosalie Rayner, died. Um, however, one has to also keep in mind that Watson was devastated by the death of his wife and perhaps felt himself not capable of raising his children at that time. Um, one of the sources of the rumors about Watson's terrible parenting uh, is the, the book Breaking the Silence by the actress Marriott Hartley, who is in fact a granddaughter of John B. Watson, and she writes about him in quite negative terms. Her father committed suicide as well, and often her father is in fact confused with the son of Watson who committed suicide, um, but in fact they are different people. Marriott Hartley is the granddaughter of Watson through her mother's side, not through her father's side. So her father's suicide has nothing whatever to do with John B. Watson. And now it's time for birthdays. First, for February 18th, in 1838, Ernst Mach was born. Mach was a physicist whose book, The Analysis of Sensations, in 1886, strongly influenced psychology. The book laid down a foundation for scientific positivism and a theory of form perception that presaged Gestalt psychology. Also on February 18th in 1871, George Ewell was born. Ewell's work in statistics resulted in the concepts and computational methods of partial correlation, multiple regression, and the contingency coefficient. Also on February 18th in 1896, Fritz Heider was born. Heider applied the principles of a gestalt perceptual theory to social behavior, resulting in productive theories of attitude consistency, attitude change, and interpersonal perception. For February 20th, first in 1871, Raymond Dodge was born. Dodge was president of the American Psychological Association in 1916. Also on February 20th, 1873, Charles H. Judd was born. Judd was president of the APA in 1909. Also on February 20th, 1900, Quinn McNamara was born. McNamara was APA president in 1964. 
for February 21st. In 1892, Harry Stack Sullivan was born. Sullivan's theory of personality stressed the social origins and social expression of personality. And finally, for February 22nd, in 1796, Adolf Ketelet was born. Ketelet was a probability theorist who applied the law of deviation from an average, now called the normal curve, to biological and social attributes. He also coined the term statistics. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorku, Y-O-R-K-U, dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 